Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Help TVO create a better world through the power of learning. Visit TVO.org and make a tax-deductible donation today. Sheila White's parents proved that love conquers. Okay, maybe not all, but a lot. The evidence of just how much they had to overcome is detailed in her new book. It's called The Letters, Postmark Prejudice in Black and White. It chronicles the family and societal opposition the mixed-race couple faced in the post-World War II era and beyond. And Sheila White joins us now. Welcome to the studio. Thank you very much, Jan. Nice to be here. Now, let's start it off. Let's get to know your parents. We have a photo of them. This is from their wedding day. Tell us a little bit about them. Well, let's start with Bill White. In my book, he's called Billy. That was his name back then. And Billy White was born in Truro in 1915 to a very famous Reverend Father, Reverend William Andrew White. Actually, his full title was Reverend Captain Dr. William Andrew White. He's a person of federal historical significance. Uh, Billy himself was a teacher. He was a social worker. At the time of the book, he is the boys programming director at the YMCA in Halifax. He was also a musician. His whole family had incredible musical talent thanks to his mother, Isidora White, who was born in a small Nova Scotia village called Mill Village and had incredible musical talent. Her background was black, white, and Mi'kmaq. And somehow she learned how to read music, had a gorgeous voice, and taught all her children the skills of music. One of those children rose to become very prominent in the figure of Portia White, Mm -hmm. who's an internationally acclaimed concert artist who broke color barriers in the 1940s. So the whole family had uh, contributions to make in the community, and Billy was very much respected and revered uh, in, among his peers, and multi-talented. Now, Vivian, a uh, nice white girl from Dartmouth, <laughs> a good Baptist. She was involved in the Baptist Young People's Union and the CGIT. She had many friends in the Dartmouth High School. And as a little girl, she created her own newsletter called the Okie Dokie News. Her family, the Keelers, were greenhouse gardeners and prominent in the community. And they were also missionaries. Some of the Keelers' women became missionaries in India. And her maternal side, the Harlows, were prominent in North Brookfield, Nova Scotia. Mm. They descended from Mayflower pilgrims. They were deeded grand swaths of land on Lake Tupper in North Brookfield. My mother's grandfather was the postmaster of North Brookfield for 42 years. He owned a general store and he was a farmer who kept a diary for 67 years. And those diaries are now housed in a museum because they are so detailed about early life. So both sides of the family had pillars of the community. The only difference was their skin color. I do want to actually uh, come back to your paternal grandparents. We have some photos um, of your grandfather. I want you to describe what we're looking at right here in this photo. Well, there is Reverend Captain William Andrew White. Uh, That photo was taken in around 1917 as he was the honorary captain to the Black Battalion, known as the Number 2 Construction Battalion. It was Canada's only black military unit. It was a labor unit. And it was a unit that the black community had to lobby 
to have them allowed to participate in the First World War. So uh, our, my grandfather was a chaplain and he was chaplain to the troops and he too kept a diary which was then made into a film about his uh, career over there. So this is one of the reasons why he was named as a, someone of historical significance. Also the fact that he organized a number of Baptist churches throughout Nova Scotia, rose to the position of moderator of the Northeastern Baptist Convention, uh, was the minister at the then Cornwallis Street, now known as the New Horizons Baptist Church, which is the mother church of Halifax for the black community. And he was... Uh, just involved in every respect of community life, finding jobs for young men who couldn't get jobs, lobbying for food for people who were hungry, this type of thing. So a community leader through and through. I want to throw up one more photo up there, and this is of Portia White. Uh, tell us a little bit about her. You mentioned, uh, you know, a, a world-renowned, well-known uh, singer as well, and so that's what we're looking at here. Yes. Well, this was in her early days of her career when she was winning every musical competition going in, in Nova Scotia. In fact, she won the musical competition provincially so many times they just told her to keep the silver cup. It's yours. You might as well just keep it forever. That's now housed in the Black Cultural Centre for Nova Scotia, along with many other items uh, pertaining to Portia's career that the family donated uh, so she began her career in around 1940 and was the first black uh, to shatter the color barrier and perform and gain international acclaim, including um, performances for royalty, uh, tours around the world. As a black woman in the 1940s, she was the first. And uh, coincidentally, and, and a wonderful piece of news, is that the Canadian Opera Company will be staging an mm. opera about Portia's life. Uh, oh. June 14th to 16th uh, here in Toronto. That's uh, so that's, you know, another notch. Portia, too, is named as a person of historical significance, has appeared on a postage stamp, and has many buildings named okay. after her. All right, let's talk about shattering these barriers, uh, but I want you to help set the stage. What were the attitudes towards black peoples in the 1940s? Well, there was no mixing. Uh, clearly, it was a, a racist society because... The white constructs of the day believed that uh, white people were in charge and setting the rules and those other groups would be marginalized, including indigenous peoples. Uh, so the conditions for blacks were was pretty dire because they could not advance to the uh, level of their ability. They were uh, pushed into jobs that were subservient jobs. Uh, and I think this is a well-known story, how the only jobs available for men were laborers or porters for the CN Railway. Um, in fact, my Uncle Jack, Bill's brother, was the first black uh, to shatter that barrier, and he got a job uh, with the CN in the car department. Mm. He was the first person to get a job other than in the porter department, and he quickly became the union steward, and there will be a Toronto Heritage plaque unveiled to him for being the first black steward in North America for any union. All right. Now, Vivian and Billy had a 10-year age difference. He was divorced. She had a fiancé and he a girlfriend. He was black, she was white. And as you laid out from the 1940s, all of those were difficult circumstances to overcome, weren't they? Yes, it was complicated. And imagine uh, your daughter coming home in the 1940s and saying, uh, I'm in love with a man, he's, he's divorced. And your mother's an, a devout Baptist, so stop right, right there. there. Right. That would be a no-go. Now you add on the layer that, 
oh, and he's 10 years older. Well, that's not going to be too good. But then you play the race card, and um, that is just going to be not, uh, it's going to be a non-starter. It's, it's not going to happen in terms of Vivian's mother, Jean's opinion. My grandmother did not want us to be born. She did not want this marriage to happen. And she orchestrated quite a campaign of letter writing amongst community members to convince Vivian that marrying a black person would be a dire activity. All right, let's talk about those letters because those letters to your mother form the basis of this story, but you wrote it as a novel. Tell me a little bit about that and why yes. that decision. My mother saved these letters, all the uh, negative opinions where most people might have crumpled them up or burned them or felt upset by them. My mother viewed these as important documents for posterity, that these attitudes had to be uh, kept and then examined later on. So that was part of my mission was to give life to these letters, but I didn't know everything. Right. I didn't ask my parent, my father about his girlfriends in the 1940s. I didn't ask uh, questions about how they met or how my mother, my grandmother found out about the relationship. So those are details I had to fictionalize. But largely, my novel is based on nonfiction events and history. All right, let's talk about the journey of uh, your mother and father. They ultimately decided to travel west and relocated to Toronto. What was their experience there and how was it vastly different from the East Coast to uh, the big city? The reason my father came to Toronto was because he had a new job at a community mm -hmm. centre on Bathurst Street called the Home Service Association, which predominantly served the black community, which the city of Toronto did a terrible job of serving mm -hmm. the welfare needs of that community at the time. And Vivian followed him rather reluctantly to Toronto. She was not convinced that this would be a good move for her. But when they got here, she realized how much freedom they had to do what they wanted to do, to go where they wanted to go, to be embraced by a community, a diverse community, a welcoming community in Toronto. And that's the exciting part about this novel, the positive aspects of the city of Toronto and the climate that my parents found here that enabled them to do some work around race relations and building the bridges and providing the example of how interracial marriage could work. Let's talk a little bit about that. They worked on a handbook for dealing with racial prejudice. Was this work, did they feel like they had to do this work? Like, tell me a little bit about the, the, the need and, and the want, because that was a, a huge part of the work that your, you know, your, your dad came down here for, but was really what defined sort of a lot of the, the work that they did when they got here. Yeah, and it's the kind of work that earned him the Order of Canada Medal and all the other accolades he got through his life. Uh, this book that you're talking about was a program annual. It was a guidebook for the United Church Youth of Canada. And how that came about was a reverend named Alvin Cooper would contact the thought leaders of the day and ask them to contribute articles around civics and finances and human relations. And uh, my father was one of the people who was approached because of his uh, role as the programming director at the Home Service Association. And his article was called, Par Pardon Me, Your Prejudice is Showing. Hmm. And what it is really, what I like to say is, and I haven't found an example to contradict me, this was the first actual race relations program outline a guidebook for leaders to have conversations about race. And he and my mother took this course outline and implemented it in church basements at fireside chats in churches and community centers. And 
started the dialogue going. So these exercises would include things as simple as uh, inviting someone into a home of another culture and seeing how they interact and live and comparing and seeing how many similarities there are. Because even that, the sharing of uh, friends of different cultures wasn't being done in Canada, as, as staggering as that seems, because we know so much better now. All right. I want to get into the letters, the nitty gritty of the letters. The most scathing words, unfortunately, came from Jean, Vivian's mother. What were some of her arguments against the marriage? Yes, well, Jean just thought that Vivian was giving away the privilege of her white skin and couldn't believe that she would be that cavalier to want to uh, be abandoned by her community, that she would never fit in anywhere, that no one would ever accept a mixed-race couple. And particularly, the children uh, would have no place where they could feel a sense of belonging because neither group would want um, a person of mixed race. Now, it wasn't just your mother, or your grandmother, rather. Many relatives uh, almost tried to guilt Vivian by using her father's war career and warnings about future children. Why do you think they thought that could work? Well, I think they played the father card because Vivian lost her father at age 11 and had a very close relationship with him. I know this because there was a letter that he wrote to her telling her, empowering her, telling her she could do anything in life. Now, he was a war hero as well. Captain Glenn Keeler kept a diary, took a photo album, had lots of memorabilia from his time over there, uh, wrote memoirs of the Great War. And the fact that he died as a result of war injuries because having been gassed, Mm -hmm. he died of tuberculosis in a sanatorium. And Vivian being so young, I think that his memory and influence, they felt they could use as a guilt card. But it didn't work because she instinctively knew that Glenn Keeler, her father, would have been an anti-racist. All right. Let's show an example of perhaps the the most upsetting a few words to Vivian. This is from a Baptist minister named William Elgie. It reads, But in consideration of your children, there would be only one step by which you could justify such a marriage. That would be to go to a hospital and have yourself sterilized ahead of time. Put your martyr complex up against that as something to be done next month and see how it stands it. And do not tell anyone that I recommended it. I do not recommend it. I say it would be one degree less evil than to bring children of mixed blood into our type of society. Jean had said something similar, but this was a minister. What does it reveal about Canadian society back then? Well, we can see from that letter how systemically ingrained the racist train of thought was in those days. And uh, that was for me, the most shocking letter, the, really the most disturbing of all, uh, because it's, it's hitting at uh, the very point of a union is, uh, is to have family and to continue on the, the legacy of, of generations. And the fact that this was the minister who had uh, baptized her, had signed her autograph book in 1936, mm. and they seemed to have a very close relationship, I think this was as cutting a comment as could have been made. And the fact that it's a man of the cloth, you know, a man of the church, um, it, it was pretty disturbing. And I don't think he ever recanted. He wrote, LG wrote a number of books on uh, Christian thought and, and moral purpose, etc. Uh, and he died, died in 1971. I don't think I ever saw anything from him hmm. uh, apologizing okay. for that. 
Did anyone from Billy's side also oppose the marriage? Well, uh, of keeping in mind that part of the book is fiction, but I imagined uh, that my grandmother was not so thrilled. Uh, and I know for a fact that my grandfather was in favor of Afrocentric schools. Hmm. He was not... Um, uh, he was not an integrated school guy. He was talked into that position, but initially he believed, as Marcus Garvey did, that the community could do for self and could do a better job of educating the black community under its own auspices, not blending with, with the whites. The couple finally married, and as they began having children, the uh, family started to come around uh, to accept it. So I want to show a photo here showing your grandmother Jean with the kids and Billy. There they are. Nice family photo right there. Tell me, how did the reconciliation come about? When my eldest brother was born, and it all boils down to children, <laughs> right? As Grandma wants family to see her baby. Yeah. And she learned of the birth through Vivian's brother, and then she sent Vivian some flannel sheets that she could cut up and make diapers from. So this was the first sign that things were going to improve. Then my mother took a trip with the two boys a couple of years later. And by the time my older sister was born, um, Nana had come around. And by the time I was born, it was all water under the bridge. If it hadn't been for these letters, I wouldn't you even wouldn't know. know. Nothing at all. Um, then uh, my next question, you know, what influence did your parents' experience have on you growing up? Well, obviously, <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy they made the decision they did, and I'm sure all my siblings are, too. We've all risen to great, you know, promising careers. We've all had happy lives, mm -hmm. and, and we've been enriched by the fact that we were raised in a non-racist household that enabled us to have all experiences with cultures without that baggage of, of judgment and um, you know, ignorance sort of clouding our experience. And I think it also stirred in us this social justice component of wanting to see equal and fair treatment and dignity for all. And, you know, all those principles that make for core, strong human relations were built into our fabric thanks to them and thanks mm -hmm. to my mother's courage for crossing that color line when everybody was telling her not to. I asked this question completely acknowledging that you have a pin right there that says, together we can stop racism. Um, have we come far enough in racial acceptance since those days of controversy of your parents, or is there a lot more work that needs to be done? Well, I don't believe we've come far enough. I mean, we've come far enough when we don't have groups complaining about uh, various unfair uh, treatment and, and, you know, just situations that happen to people of color. Uh, so... I've tried my best to provide tools such as a storybook. I wrote an anti-racist joke book. <laughs> All the jokes are about a racist. No, why, why is the racist liquor cabinet never properly stocked? No uh, mix. You know, uh, you, need, okay. you need the mix. Um, or why did the racist go to the eye doctor? To get his point of view fixed, oh. right? So I would say, why feel uncomfortable when someone says a racist joke? Mm -hmm. Tell the racist a joke about a racist. Okay. And so, you know, <laughs> always looking for tools to broaden the dialogue and to simmer down the temperature and so that the good things can emerge. And that's what I want my book to do is kind of restart the conversation around race relations. Let's, let's stop punishing ourselves and let's start... 
uh, doing what my father did, which was um, he dismantled racism. He, he did not allow it to affect him. He, it never held him back. Uh, and he used music and his gift of having people sing in harmony together. He could get a room of any number of people singing four-part harmony in five minutes. I have heard his voice. And, very, uh, very beautiful. Yeah, beautiful thing to have happen and also demonstrating that harmony, musical harmony and human harmony are oh. very closely interlinked. Why is this story important to tell? You've had these letters for quite a while and you've been working on encouraging your mother as well uh, to, to, write the, to write this story, but why is this story important to tell still? Yes, and I should mention my mother was a big recycler. No, <laughs> zero waste before they even had terms for that. <laughs> and um, if I had not done something with these letters, they would have been wasted. And so we couldn't have that. These letters are a testament to attitudes that we are working very strenuously to erase from existence. And I needed those letters to, to advance the, that whole cause of we can do a better job of human relations. And let's not even call it race relations. Let's mm. just talk people to people. We weren't raised as a family that viewed societies of uh, segments of subgroups. You know, people are people and, and we can all get along. And so I wanted this book to um, elevate that line of thought. What do you think is the biggest takeaway uh, for people reading this book uh, once they complete it? What do, you, what do you hope that the big takeaway is? Racism can be cured. You know, I, I liken racism to a disease, and I heard a very interesting quote saying that racism is a disease of adults. Hmm. Let's not use children to, pa to pass it on. You see, so uh, this, what the takeaway is, is children are our future. Children are innocent and pure, and they don't have racist attitudes. They are learned. So let's get on a track where we, we start teaching uh, good human relations instead of biased, prejudicial attitudes. My last question to you, of course, uh, your mother wasn't able to tell this story. Uh, what do you think she would think if uh, she saw this book? Well, the first thing she'd do is get out her red pen and circle all the mistakes because she was a crackerjack stenographer right. and uh, any detail that wasn't right, my mother would be there to correct it. She was, she was a great critic that way. Uh, both my parents would be tremendously proud and I know that their family, their children, that they viewed that as their greatest accomplishment. And so the fact that um, there's so much progeny in, in my family. I mean, we didn't even mention George Eliot Clark, right. my first cousin <laughs> once removed, or Senator Donald Oliver, the first black senator elected in Canada, my first cousin, and Tim White, basis right. for the headstones. You I know. need to join this, ma'am. This is quite a problem. <laughs> we welcome you. You know, we do have an honorary category. <laughs> so... Um, I, I forget what your question actually in terms was. Of your but in terms of, yeah. What I think they'd be, they'd be happy about it, and um, I think they'd be really glad their story was told. All right. Sheila, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Thanks, J.M. It's, very it's great been a work. blast. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is made possible through generous philanthropic contributions from viewers like you. Thank you for supporting TVO's journalism.